Welcome, listeners, to Dark Tide Season 3. You've heard of Season 1. You've bared through Season 2. Dark Tide's misdebates happened. Other things. Hi. Aubrey Lydon here. here. That didn't work. Um, Aubrey Lydon here. We're uh, just going to ignore the the fact that Mr. Bates is the best thing we've made. (laughs) Uh, Look, I think think you'll find if you look at the the statistics on that. It was the most successful series. (laughs) I'm I'm agreeing with you, Chester. Uh, You want to fight, bro? I've got a pin here. I'm agreeing with you. I found this pin on the floor. None of us own bobby pins, but I found it on the floor. It's It's a safety pin, Chester. It's part of what holds the fabric of the studio. Safety pins are very sharp and they go through clothing. Bobby pins are for hair. Yes. Clearly, you did not grow up at dance competitions I like did I not, did. Sadly, and a V pin or a French pin is completely different to a bobby pin. What's All the right, pin that has here, a, a shiny circular thing on the end that used for safety pin? Safety specific. pin. That's a safety. But yes. then, why is this also well, a safety? Pin? Probably because it was holding something very significant. That is a safety. <laughs> Oh God! Wait, it was holding together you... the studio. Oh, oh no, 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 that's no a, bro, that's a clothes pin. Uh, they call them like clothes pin or like a dressmaker's pin. That's a safety pin that you have. So this is a safety pin because it has a little sheath. I don't. No one cares. Anyway, and um, then a bobby pin is, not... is you know the long one with the rubber tips that people put in here. And then a V pin is the is that, but it doesn't have the rubber tips and it doesn't have the little squiggly bit. It's just like that, and that's for like ballet buns and stuff. Mm. I have short hair. <laughs> Well, this episode is a write-off. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's me. Are we just going straight into intros? Yes, just go. Fine. Sure, it's why, me. why would we try anything else? It's me, BJ. I play Alistair Stern. He's old. He's a parent now. That's all you need to know. Hello, I'm Chester Lyndon. I play Ernest Marsh, the camp counselling... Uh, Converse-wearing... Wendigo-loving. Wendigo-loving... Uh, vape... Anti-vape enthusiast uh, Ernest Marsh. He's enthusiastically anti-vape. Canadian anti-vape enthusiast. I feel like um, like Alistair has kind of a an older Keanu Reeves vibe now. Oh yeah, very much. So. <laughs> I mean, he does so have long hair. Sad. Has he said on like multiple occasions, like I don't have any friends and my life's pretty sad. But other than that, I'm I mean, pretty good. Alistair is trying to raise a child in literal hell. Yeah, a, so he has he's got more than Keanu in a Reeves. Mad Max commune. So like, <laughs> yeah. I thought we were. I thought we decided we didn't like the word commune. We don't. I don't. Aubrey, yeah. Okay, Aubrey does. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, just um, um, little commune compound. Aubrey, who do you play? Everyone. Go. Cool. Okay. Let's go. Aubrey plays my wife. Uh, it's not wrong. It doesn't sound. Right. And he <laughs> plays my brother. Yeah! <laughs> That's a funny joke, actually, because you two are related in real life. I am see. all things to all people. Aubrey's not my wife in real life, guys. Just I wanted to make that really clear because I thought maybe somebody would think that. <laughs> I can stop talking now. Cool. Um, are we doing... Do we? We've, fun facts. Fun, fun fact. Facts can be fun. Facts can be fun. Facts can be fun. Yeah. I can can go first. You go first. All right. Um, My fun fact is that Alistair's fatherhood has been plagued by constant fear that he would be anything like his own father, which, you know, it's like, it's like, Mestern has his good points, but Alistair definitely um, aimed to model his, uh, aimed and still aims to model his parenting off his mother. Um, 
who isn't there for for yeah. very ov- obvious reasons. Yes, but she's not there, and she hasn't. She's not messed. He hasn't seen her in fifteen years, and he sees his dad every day. So, and and also he's living in his dad's house, probably in like his dad's bedroom now as well. So it's like, hmm, <laughs> he's he, trying really hard not to be his dad, and like, ooh, it's a struggle. Here's the thing: most twenty-year-olds decide that everything their parents ever did was terrible and wrong and that they're never going to be like them. What has Alistair learnt to appreciate about his father now that he's also become a father? Because that's typically what happens is usually they become a parent and like, oh, wow, my parents are trying their best and like they messed up here and here, but I understand what they did here, here and here. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, maybe this is something we'll get into like in show as well, but I think probably like that's how he would have started out, very enthusiastic. Like, I'm going to be so different to my dad. And now that he's realised that like... I'm I'm doing exactly what my dad did, which was try to lead a town, except that I'm doing it with way more pressure. And it's like, yeah, no wonder dad found them. <laughs> this is really hard. <laughs> and so I feel like him and his dad probably would have, if his dad actually listened to him, which maybe he probably has at some point in the last 15 years, surely. He's had plenty of time. He's, saw, he's seen there's him no, every day. There's not enough to distract him 15, now. Yeah, exactly. He has no job now. Um, oh, he's I busy. Like, no, he's got things on. I feel like there definitely would have been a conversation of like, you know, Alistair, I know I didn't do the best job, but like, you know, I, th- I think you're doing all right. And let's try and, you know, let's try and work together. I feel Carl. like they would have. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know that my impression that of Aubrey's impression people, of my character's dad is just J.P. Riddles. You see, Alistair. <laughs> As J.P. Riddles. Yeah, that's, that's what I think. That's what I think uh, Alistair thinks Aubrey's impression of Alistair's dad yeah, is. Yeah, no, that's what it is. Um, <laughs> so many layers of emulation. Look, this is not yeah. my fun fact, but check out Hey Riddle Riddle. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, the only thing that I've listened to of that show is a clip that Aubrey sent me, and I was like, that's a good voice. I'm going to use that from now on. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, hey Riddle Riddle is uh, an American <laughs> riddle podcast, which you would think. And literally, they they're fully aware that that sounds just, like just a terrible thing. Just listen to thing. it, and it'll make sense. But it is it's it's very very funny. And to me, their best stuff is this recurring character called JP Riddles, who is just an insane man. Yeah, it's me, JP Riddle, and that's a that's a bad impression. And I think he was supposed to be he. It started out as a spoof on the guy who wrote the Goosebumps books, who's okay, who's. I think I feel like his name is something like JP something or other. I don't remember. And I've never read the Goosebumps books. So, check out Hey Riddle Riddle. Here's... Uh, no, you've got... Give... Did you give I, us I was just going to finish my fact by saying I feel like they would have had the opportunity to bond over that of like... Yeah, we'll see. Oh, we're actually both... Both contending with similar issues, except Alistair's with a lot more pressure. Roll for bond. And also, Alistair's marriage is still together. <laughs> roll for bond. Don't actually roll. I'm not going to roll. I'm like... I'm, I'm, wow, that shows you how like... <laughs> set I am in the rows like anybody tells me to roll for something like, alright all right, yeah, I'll just ro- do it yeah, I'll, like, roll, wait, hang on. I'll roll for my bond with my father we're not sure. even playing the game right now <laughs> look I make you roll for weirder stuff yep um, fun fact for Chester I'm going to give you a recommendation <gasps> I'm going to recommend to you that you read The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon oh Chester so you'll never guess who it's by <laughs> you'll never guess who it's by Stephen King uh, it's one of his latter books uh, I believe 90s, late uh, 90s, I'm not sure. Um, it's on Audible. It's like five hours long. It's quite short. It's very different to his typical. So it's in a very different style to his typical stuff. It's 
way smaller, way more condensed. It's about this girl who goes missing in the Appalachian Mountain area, and she's missing for like several weeks. And it's about her learning how to survive and all this. But the entire time, she has this um, uh, Walkman with her, and every night she listens to, I believe it's like the Red Sox game, and she's waiting for Tom Gordon to come out onto the pitch because he's their like end game um, bowler. More or less, uh, there's a specific term for it, like the guy pitcher. Who comes, no, but the like the who comes in at the very end. His sole purpose is he comes in to win. I'm pretty sure that they don't have ace. That's kind of yeah, where that but term. Comes no, from. there is a specific term because if they're not at a certain point, he won't even come out. Like if they don't have a good enough chance of winning, he doesn't yeah. come out. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, it's the, there's a specific. We grew term up for in it. Australia. We don't know anything about. Yeah, baseball. we don't play baseball, but um, all my baseball knowledge is from uh, Space Jam. <laughs> <laughs> And he plays that for do you, uh, do you 10 minutes in that the, episode. The basketball yeah, he play, movie? He plays it for like 10 minutes in that movie and he's bad at it. So <laughs> he goes back to basketball. Um, but anyway, so really, it's really quite clever because um, she starts to like visualize seeing him and he's kind of like guiding her through how to survive in this. And she starts to work out as she's going through that there is something in the uh, forest with her that's going ahead of her and sabotaging her. So, like, she goes into this um, swamp area and she finds this big gray, like, area of plants that she knows she can eat and something has killed a deer and left half of it there and the other half in another plot of that stuff, covering it in blood so she can't eat any of it. So she knows there's something... Blood is actually very good for you. Yeah, but the, like she can't look at the entirely torn apart deer. Nah. She's like it's eleven years old. Only good if it's <laughs> fresh. Yeah. Um, but it's this whole thing. Like she starts to work out that there's something that's like trying to make her even more desperate and like wear her down. It's really cool. It's really clever. I will say to Chester's credit, um, usually when he tells me about the plot of Stephen King books, I'm very interested and I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. I would hate that because it sounds way too long and depressing, but it sounds like a good story. And when he was telling me about this one, I was like, actually, I would read that. <laughs> I haven't yet because I'm still trying to get through a bunch of other books, but eventually. Yeah, you, should, yeah. you should check it out. Well. Um, all right. I got a fun fact, which kind of complements uh, the Alistair fun fact just a little. Um, I've The rabbit hole I've been down recently is medical researchers who are interesting, like doing interesting stuff. Um, and I came across a guy, I can't remember his name, doesn't really matter, uh, but basically all of his, his medical research is around brain development in children. And according to him, and apparently there's quite a lot of research for like the last 20 years plus that backs this up, that when you're a child between the Gross. ages, like, like the three months, something like the last three months of pregnancy up until about the age of seven or eight, mm-hmm. your brain is basically functioning on um, uh, like the subconscious level. It's literally functioning at the frequency that when you're an adult, your subconscious functions on. Oh, interesting. So you are just absorbing all the information around you. And basically, that is your brain going, what is the my like my operating system for being a human being is just everything that you absorb between the ages of like the last three months of pregnancy to about age eight. That's why most people don't really have any real memories from before age about seven or eight, uh, because you're actually almost not conscious. Uh, is there something wrong with me? Because I like very vividly remember like my second birthday and like moving out of home 
when I was two, moving in when I was two to the well, next the house, that- and my third birthday, <laughs> and a lot of stuff from when I was four. And then Am I me. just? <laughs> I can't remember my fifteenth birthday. <laughs> Look, it, it's I don't know. I don't know much about that. All I know is that, that all of that information is still there. So that's why sometimes you it's know, like, you know, I can remember okay. things from when I was you know that age, when you kind of shouldn't be able to. Is because all that information is there. But basically, my right. point to telling you that is that one thing. That's that's some great fodder for some short stories. Um, but secondly, it means that uh, Sky, Alistair's daughter. Her entire life and her entire operating system for how she is as a human being, she has got out of the situation that you guys are currently living yeah, in. Yeah, absolutely. So as an adult, you know, assuming that life goes back to normal in some way, the archipelago reconnects with the rest of the world in terms of time, she's going to be a very different kind of person than yeah. lots of lots of other people her own age or whatever. And I just think that's really it's really interesting for mm. me to think about who she is based on her operating system, is this world. She's only ever known the archipelago as it is and this village as it is. I feel like I didn't really think about that because in prepping for the season, Aubrey and I did a lot of talking about Alistair and Puck's relationship and how that would have changed based on, like, how they knew each other before and then moving to the archipelago and then, like, getting married and that being in this situation of being locked off and all that stuff. Um, And then we're like, oh, yeah, and they have a daughter. Cool. But we, uh, yeah, we didn't really think about like what's she going to be like and how is that going to have affected her? Because obviously, Puck and Alistair have their own sort of stories, but that was outside of this world that they're living in now. Mm. So I think it'll be interesting just to see how that comes together because I haven't had a great deal of thinking about about who Sky will be, but I think we'll kind of discover that as we go. Yeah, definitely, be cool. I have a very short recommendation. Yeah. I recommend that you listen to the rest of this episode that we're going to start right now. <laughs> That's my way of saying, let's start the episode. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, thanks. It's pretty cool. You just took an it? extra 40 seconds to, yep. you know, pad out You're this welcome. opening. Yeah, yeah. I really, like, <laughs> I really like making things, like, precise and concise. You know, you get on that. Look, I'm here, I'm here yeah. for comfort, not for, not for speed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that should be your attitude to listening to an episode of Dark Tides. You know, just sit down. Easy listening. Relax. Easy. <laughs> easy childhood drama. Yeah. All, All right. right. Let's, let's do it. Um, okay. Do we do we need a recap? A uh, quick one. A little, little quick right. one. Uh, in the last episode, we're only going to cover the last episode, you basically had time to uh, catch up, to talk, and to basically explain each other's situation. Uh, and you kind of laid it all out on the table that you, Alistair, and Puck had been here on the archipelago when the mists moved in and that that over the course of a couple of months cut off basically uh, all shipping traffic and then all communication to the outside world Uh, that for them they've been here for 15 years in isolation and they've been learning how to survive with very very little um, and to protect themselves but that steadily the incursions from all sorts of supernatural creatures that they have never seen or heard of even in their training at Tyr uh, that these attacks have grown worse and worse and more and more frequent uh, and that they're getting harder and harder pressed for survival here. Uh, meanwhile, Ernest uh, explained how he got through the fog, that it was Carrion who let them in. He explained about the uh, giant statue of Carrion, which he believes to be one of several, and that the connection that this uh, phenomena of the fog seems to be manifesting 
in some way across all the different layers of reality, at least those that you guys are aware of. Um, and that you are either trapped in here as a means to keep something in the archipelago locked away or to prevent mother and anyone else from getting in. So you're either in a prison or you're in a safe vault and you do not know which. Uh, could be both in some ways. Um, and in all of that explanation, you guys had figured out that uh, based on Ernest's interactions with Heath, Heath is dying, that he, uh, the curse placed on him, or the deal rather, that he made with the Fae, um, it's time to collect. And he is desperately holding on for Puck's blessing to go. Uh, and so your first priority, it seems is to try and get a message to him through Ernest's abilities plugged into the Port Staples radio station. Mr. Pop. Ernest Marsh, you are sleeping, as so often happens for you. <laughs> Nearly every day. Um, yeah, was, what is what is Ernest? Go be done. What is Ernest dreaming about? Um, all right. Ernest is standing on the top of the wall that surrounds the uh, whatever this. Uh, compound is Ravenholm. Ravenholm, and he is looking out as it. The wall is bending this way and that way, and some parts have fallen over. Some parts have like caved in. And Alistair is currently yelling at him. What did you do to my wall? It's very anime, like chibi, big head, like big exclamation mark above Alistair. <laughs> what did you do to my wall? Like off in the distance. And Alistair's there with a hammer. Is like, I made it better. <laughs> I don't have a level. A storm cloud appears above Alistair's head with a lightning bolt. He's like, mm. <laughs> uh, Ernest, uh, this dream, this dream is a strange one, but not not unfamiliar to you. <laughs> Another one of being told off. Yeah, um, and you hear you hear uh, like a hammer pounding nails, and you look down, and at the base of the wall, uh, you see uh, Edgar. In his normal human form, uh, he has a couple of nails like between his teeth and he is just hammering a nail with a hammer. Um, Edgar, no, he said stop. And then you look down again and it's no longer Edgar, but it is uh, Bernie with his his scraggly beard and his sort of shrunken physique. Uh, um, but you see that Bernie um, is actually nailing a nail through his own hand. Oh. Right. Okay. I don't know. Okay, sure. Um, I, that took a turn. Uh, you look around and Alistair is gone. He's no longer there. Um, you look down. Edgar is gone. He is no longer there. And you just see Bernie there. And it's kind of like the, uh, the edges of your vision start to, like, go dark. It's like this tunnel vision thing as you focus in on Bernie and just seeing the hammer and just the rhythmical tink, tink, tink. Uh, Ernest is going to start to try and 
walk towards Bernie, but as he takes steps, it seems like Bernie stretches further and further away. As you're taking steps, Ernest, the the wall beneath you seems to quake again um, with almost a rolling motion, and as you look down, you see waves lapping at your feet, and as you look back up, you're no longer standing on a wall, but you are standing on a pillar of uh, timber, almost this tree trunk in the midst of a rolling sea and the waves are rising higher and they're crashing up over your feet and you feel the water cold and briny soaking into your socks. The water twists and turns and as it crashes, it goes into a white foam and slowly breaks into rolling waves of mist. And Earth sees creatures moving in the mist, huge hulking creatures, like those he saw through Dylan's eyes when he was looking down into the last kingdom. Um, you, as you're looking at these shapes moving underneath and you're, you're feeling this darkening sensation of your vision and there's like this white noise sound that's kind of buzzing in your ears and making it very hard to focus and your vision is shaking and going out of focus. You step back to try and regain your balance and your heel catches off the edge of the pillar and you fall backwards down into this mist. you feel yourself falling through this mist and at some point you realise you're no longer falling, you're laying on the ground in some kind of stone room or cave, you can't tell whether it's hand made whether it's human made or whether it's natural but you can see a figure uh, crouched on the ground with their back to you and all you can see is one hand uh, with long dirty nails that are slightly curved and you can see in its fist is a toad a large wart covered toad and the hand is just squeezing and squeezing and squeezing until you hear a disgusting pop and smush and you kind of roll over trying to get away from it and you begin to run and you fear you feel this fear take hold of your mind this terror of whatever is behind you of whatever was in that room of those hands of those fingernails and with the white noise buzzing sound in your ears as you're running scrabbling through this hallway you begin to hear laughter Ernest 
spins around as the laughter echoes in and out. And he turns around and he grabs onto Randy, but Randy from years past. And the laughter coming from his mouth as his face dissolves into Cheshire's and dissolves back into his own and then dissolves away. And then, Ernest, you are engulfed in something soft and you realise it's feathers brushing across your face, across your neck, and this is a warm embrace. And then you feel that you are moving, that you're being pulled up and out and away, and you gasp as the fog leaves your lungs and you are brought back to this little wooden pillar in the island of rolling seas. And as you open your eyes, Ernest, uh, feathers flutter across your eyelids. And there before you stands an unfamiliar figure. The similarity to Carrion is striking. Uh, This figure has the same physiognomy somewhere indefinably between human, anthropomorphic and bird. Uh, as they step back onto the rolling waves, their feet just barely sinking in, they rearrange their feathers around them almost like a cloak. And you see a face with a, a coffee complexion and large eyes. Uh, there is something far more feminine about this face than there is about carrions. You see that the feathers are dark, almost in this deep uh, iridescent navy blue, but with the ends tipped in silver. Whereas with carrion, he's, he seems to have a, a very dark, mysterious presence. His black feathers, very, very hidden, shadowy type appearance. Um, and yet with this creature it seems almost the opposite almost like it's shining like it's full of light somehow even though the feathers are still dark there's this shimmer somehow and a glint in the eye you're not quite sure but it seems somehow very very far removed from carrion even though the physiological body is very similar and just as these waves roll and change the light seems to shift on these feathers and they dance between a dark iridescent blue and this sort of shimmering silver uh, almost as though the waves roll through the feathers as well and you feel something whereas before you had been clutched by fear in that dream you feel this strange kinship and you feel your skin want to respond want to shape and ripple and move in the way that it can because of your changeling form it's recognising something of a kinship with this figure and you realise that somehow instinctually you realise this is another shepherd Ernest pauses kind of waiting for the dream to take on a new more horrific form but he finds himself just standing here and he takes a moment and he calls out are you the other? You, she puts her head on the side and kind of squints and looks up and looks down. Carrion said another would come. 
well, another is not another, or another is not an other, but I am an other. Yes? Uh, not another one. <laughs> Sinks to his knees like hands on his face. I don't need another one. <laughs> she, uh, and then she, there is a swoop and you feel as Russell Feathers and she is uh, inches from your face. No. And she is very close. And Carrion, Carrion just has this, this sober porcelain rigid expression that is very thoughtful and very dour. But uh, this creature, you do not yet know her name, her expression is ever-changing. It's somewhere between serious and curious to playful and then back to serious. It's in this ever-changing ever kind of expression. It's never still anywhere. So, you are the pilgrim. You are the wanderer, the traveller, the pilgrim. You are Ernest. Ernest, I am Luna. Hello. Hello. Uh, Ernest, like, pauses and frowns, like... Interesting. Hmm. Most people call me the dreamer. Hmm. Well, you dream. You walk through dreams. You wander through dreams, but you are not the dreamer. The dreamer is another... In some ways, I am the dreamer. In some ways, you are a dreamer, but not the dreamer. But you are a wanderer in dreams. She's like playing with the corner of your um, bomber cap. She's like lifting one of the flaps up and down and up and down. She's like... Strange. <laughs> Frowns for a second. I'm a wanderer. Yeah. She's, she's playing with the ear flap up, down, up, down. Just because you... Dream does not make you the dreamer, but all creatures, or most creatures, do dream, but that's a gift. And a gift that not all have, but most do have, and most that I give. But you especially. You especially walk in dreams because you are the pilgrim in dreams. I'm talking too much. Ernest, uh, uh, like, slowly puts his hand down on, like, the flap of the ear. Um... Right. So you're here to... Uh, the expression again changes from where it had been playful now. It is, it is very serious and the rippling stops still in this sort of iridescent dark blue form. I am here to guide you, Ernest. You are no longer Carrion's lost thing, but you are the pilgrim in the dreaming. And the dreaming is in trouble. Why? The the expression of curiosity and fun comes back and the silver sheen comes back and it's like, well, what do you think, Ernest? But Ernest kind of frowns. As the dreaming's been in difficult situations before. It wasn't 20 years ago where the dreaming was awake. Is the dreaming in that much danger? The dreaming is a casualty. The dreaming is not what it was. But the dreaming should never be one thing, and never one thing for very long. But the dreaming will cease to be. The dreaming will not be conquered because the dreaming cannot be conquered, but the dreaming will be killed because to dream is to walk free. And mother does not want any to walk free. 
If they can dream, they can hope. If they hope, they might rebel. Mother will kill the dreaming, Ernest. What is this for? She's going back to playing with the hat. Stop my ears from getting cold. She, like, feels her own head. I don't have ears. I have ears. She's got holes. <laughs> she steps back and she towers up over you, tall as carrion. My brother was able to help you for a time. Sourpuss that he is. Yes, he was able to help you for a time, but now it is my time to help you, Ernest. You have been put in my charge. I am here to walk with you. I am here to guide you through the dreaming, Ernest, but... The dreaming needs your help, too. There are some things that I cannot do, given my... She kind of fluffs her feathers, the sort of feathery cape that it looks like she's wearing. Nature, because of my... Nature... Yes, that's the word. Why are you looking at me like this? Because it's polite to look at people when they're talking. Mm. It's the expression of, of concern and fear that I'm concerned of and afraid by. Hey, they were both on the same page. You need to wake up. You, Ernest, you feel kind of a buzzing in your head again. Similar to what you felt before earlier in the dream, but not with the ominous kind of heavy feeling. It's just like this weird kind of buzzing like inside your brain and then you just hear somebody clearing their throat, what sounds like inside your brain. Just <coughs> <coughs> uh, <coughs> Ernest like brushes the sound away. Shut up, Alistair, I don't care! <laughs> you you do not recognise this voice. Oh, I was like, Shut up, I don't care whoever it is! And he like, looks back to her. Have you seen him, though? The dreamer? Yeah. Yes. I know the dreamer, but the dreamer cannot move. And you see she's, like, drifting backwards from you, almost as if just like Bernie was previously in your dream, as though distance is stretching and she is being pulled away from you. <clears throat> These rolling waves begin to crash higher around her and the fog begins to swallow her. Can I reach him? You can reach the dreamer. But the dreamer must not wake. For if the dreamer wakes, it wakes with him. Ernest, um, Ernest opens his eyes. And he sees an empty room. Where is Ernest sleeping? Um, I don't know. I'm going to say... I'm going to assume the, the mayor residence was full of people already. So I'm assuming it's probably in a little extra, like, back room on, like, one of the... Because my imagining is the houses closest to the walls are the ones people want to stay in the least. Because those are seen, or that's where like oh, yeah. soldiers would be, type of thing. Because those people need to wake up, so Ernest would be in like a bunk in one of those. Yeah, you could be in the oh, barracks. Yeah. yeah, type of thing. And he'd want to be close to the wall anyway, in case he needed to hear um, Edgar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that works. All right, you wake up. Uh, there is the bustle of people getting up. It is pretty much dawn. Uh, the light that comes through the fog as you step outside 
is grey and bleak, and there is just condensation and dew everywhere. Uh, there is just this patterning of moisture over everything. And as you you stand, you take a breath, and it's cold and refreshing and moist. It feels like early spring almost, though you you know that when you left the mainland, you were in summer, I think we said. Um, yeah, I think so. Well, we're, yeah, so I we've think we been... said that it was like very summery, like oppressive, humid on the archipelago. So I assume so, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, it would have been then winter when he was traveling through and England it was, and America, and so yeah. then you're coming to Australia in that area. Would be and summer. it was winter in the Wendigo arc, and if two years from there, it's like two winters away and then summer. Yeah. Yeah. So this doesn't feel like summer though. This feels like some kind of early spring. There's a chill in the air and you wrap your, your yellow coat around you and you can smell the beginnings of wood smoke as, as cooking fires are lit. You can hear a rooster crowing and you can hear the muffled uh, bleating of a few sheep as they begin to stir and wake and you're looking around at this village and it's hard to believe that they're in danger. It's this silence, this peaceful quiet broken only by the rustle of leaves in trees and these small animal sounds and the occasional clink of um, of pots being moved around in some of these little houses. Mm. So what is Ernest going to do? Ernest is going to get out of the bunk, put on his shoes and look around. What's the bunk look like? What's the barracks look like? Uh, the barracks is a pretty basic uh, this is like a garage that's been converted um, with these sort of bunk beds built off the walls. They're not freestanding. Um, each bunk bed has like a, a box, like a chest underneath it that's like, that can kind of be pulled out to put belongings in. And you can tell that from all you're gathering, no one's really told you, but that um, that there are some members of the town guard that are just permanently on... Uh, call on watch people like Nancy and Bernie you would assume people that were probably some form of professional uh, police firefighters security whatever previously but then you get the sense that this is probably a bit of a rotation of people and when they are when they are up for rotation for service kind of thing that they live in the barracks and then they return home after mm-hmm. yep uh, Ernest uh, realizes that he still doesn't have his lantern because he left that with Bernie uh, he's going to pick up Derek Harlow's gun, uh, which he doesn't have any bullets for. He's like he never packs bullets for it. He's going to stuff it back uh, in his back pocket, and he's going to head out and aim to go to the wall. As he's walking, he's looking around and thinking to himself: No Gina, no Watchman, no Randy, no Marv. Mm. And he's going to pause as you know, like he's heading towards the wall and he sees like a bunch of like young kids like 12, 13 year olds like walk past and he thinks helping the youth Jeremy no one mentioned Jim He's going to like put his hands on his hips and like look around, expecting Jeremy to appear. <laughs> thing. He's Conveniently, like, magically in this story. And he like waits. One. All right, well, he's not here. Okay. <laughs> he's going to keep walking towards the wall. Mm-hmm. Cool. 
Uh, all right, yeah, you, you find the wall. Uh, you can see uh, a hunched figure at the very top of the wall, right where the, the gates are. There's the, the stairs kind of on either side of the gates that lead diagonally up to this walkway. Uh, and you can see this is probably Bernie. Yep, Ursa's going to uh, start heading up the steps and go to Bernie. Hmm. Uh, Bernie does not look like he's slept. Bernie looks like he's been on watch since you left him. Um, the the lantern is by his feet, um, safely behind the wall, and he is leaning on the parapet. The What you're realising now, the impressively sized crossbow is almost up to his hip height. That this Ooh. thing... You don't know what a man. how the kind of mechanics of how this works, but the amount of force that must go behind one of these arrows is probably enough to puncture like plate steel. Yeah. If it didn't if the arrow itself didn't shatter, the amount of force behind it would puncture steel. Mm-hmm. I believe it's called a bolt, Aubrey, if it's coming from a crossbow. Yes, it is. Also a quarrel. Ooh. He always has to one-up. Um, <laughs> anyway. He one-upped my one-up. Uh, 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 pats Bernie on the back and leans against the um, parapet mm-hmm. as well. Good morning. He looks up, I suppose. Sort of morning. How did you sleep? As good as I ever do. Mm. Mm. Your friend's still there. He's nodding down at the tree line and you can see just kind of a row or two of trees back in the shadow. You can see a small figure with sort of a pale complexion. Hmm. What's wrong, Bernie? And he's going to like put his hand on your, on your shoulder. What does that mean, Ernest? Just asking. Well, I don't know what it means. Just just seeing how you go. I'm fine. Ernest? No, you're not. Don't tell me what I am. Well, you're not. I've known you for long enough to know that you're not. Ernest. Bernie. You haven't been here in 15 years. I know. And we only knew each other professionally for about a year. For me... That was close to 20 years ago. Hmm. You don't know me. Mind your own business, Ernest. And he brushes past you and walks down the stairs. Ernest pauses, kind of considering what to do here and how nice he should be. And then he sees, flashing before him again, the vision of Bernie hammering his hand to the wall and he knows something is deeply wrong. So, no! And he's going to start following him. Okay. Um... He's heading for, for the garrison, like the, the guardhouse. What are you going to do? Uh, keep following him. Are you, are you trying to catch up to him? Let's follow him behind him. Uh, he's limping. You can see that, that movement is not easy for him. Uh, you can see that whatever has happened to him, the the you can't actually tell if he... If, from the way he's moving his leg, it either seems like part of it is no longer what, an organic, normal leg, or that the damage that's being done to it is severe enough that it, it's, it severely hampers the way that his muscles and joints move in his right leg. He gets to the, the door of the, the garrison. He kind of flings it open and shouts inside um, for someone to come and replace him. And he 
slams the door basically in your face. All right, nice talking to you. Okay. That's great. Uh, he's like rubs his, his like back of his hair. He's like, it's time to start. I suppose. And he's going to kind of walk out to kind of just like that entrance area of where the the door is to wait for Alistair. Mm-hmm. As you are walking up, you can see Alistair is, is already on his way to the gate as well. He's walking down the main central path from the Stern family residence. Um, and I think the 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 night before, after you'd all had dinner in the in the Stern house, I think they would have called a town meeting, um, and Alistair would have explained very loosely to everyone that uh, that that you are here now like roughly who you are that there's been a way through the, the the fog probably wouldn't have mentioned the time jump to everyone um as far as they're concerned you're just a random person that he knows um and that because of that in the morning you and he were going to try and get to the radio station um to say that there might be a way out and he also explained that you have a friend with you who is a Wendigo, that he's, he's on your side, essentially. He's safe. He's currently outside the town, but he's not to be attacked or, or imprisoned or anything. Um, just to, like, explain that, explain your presence and the presence of a Wendigo that showed up earlier that day. Um, so I think that would have happened the night before and was with the agreement that you would meet at the gate this morning to go out to the radio station. I assume that's what you're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you see him walk up. It's like, you ready? Uh, reattaches his uh, lantern to his rope and slings it onto his back. Yep. Have you had breakfast? Yep. You see him slowly rising a, a granola bar to his mouth. Um. Right. You see him slowly rise. <laughs> like uh, an orange slice to his mouth. Um. Uh, Alistair walks past you to this uh, kind of like little outdoor meeting area with like a fireplace and some chairs and things outside one of the barracks. Um, and you can see a couple of people there like cooking eggs or whatever. And he like scoops up um, two like pieces of bread and puts an egg between them and then like does it again and hands you one. He's like, I haven't either. All right. <laughs> like he, he takes starts it. munching. He takes it and Alistair's going to walk out of the. I'm assuming there's probably like a big door and then like a little door type of thing. No, there's just the so big. There's, there's just the why big would they door? do just a big door? That's stupid. Because they're not that big. They're kind of like the the wide gateway, like the biggest possible entrance. Uh, is probably it's like a very big four, driveway gate. Right? It's like four meters wide, and so and only about maybe two and a half meters tall. Okay, so you could fit a small truck through here. If you were careful, but nothing bigger, because the bigger it is, the harder it is to defend. Right. Okay. In this instance, uh, Ernest is going to. Uh, but they open the the gates are open now. Okay. Right. Uh, well, Ernest will make his way out into the kind of front clearing area and whistle. There is a very short whistle back, but as you see, you're not the only people leaving. Um, uh, Alice, this is just part of the fabric of every day. Um, there's a small troop of people, maybe 20 people, who are heading out with you. A few of them um, have big wicker baskets on their backs. They're heading into the trees near 
the woods um, to, to cut timber, to harvest for firewood. And there are others that are heading to um, basically fields that uh, lie just outside the walls, but well within the, the, the scope of the, the guards on top of these sort of watch posts um, because they need extra land to farm things like um, basically grain, stuff that needs more space. And so you are kind of leaving with this gaggle of people. Um, as Alistair's walking over, he um, is sort of like checking, checking in with everyone who's leaving and making sure they're all ready to go. Um, and before they walk out the gate, he looks over and just sees Puck walking up with Sky. Mm-hmm. Should we have like a conversation yeah. there really quick before we leave? Yeah, Puck is uh, one arm is in a sling to kind of keep it from moving too much. You can see that uh, Sky is like leaning. <laughs> Like almost perpendicular, like like forwards, trying to uh, like move forwards really fast, and Puck is just holding her hand to keep her from yeah. bolting towards you as they make their way down. Um, and you can see that Sky has a backpack on, uh, and that she kind of wriggles out of Puck's grip and dashes and kind of like collides with uh, your legs. Alistair picks her up and gives her a hug. He's like, "Where are you going?" Sporting. With you? No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're staying. Yes, I am. No. Yes, I am. I'm not going to the forest like I normally do. I am going elsewhere. Exactly. And yes, I need to go elsewhere staying, too. No, you're no, staying I need with to Mom. come elsewhere too because you're going to the radio station and the radio yes. station has the things that I need for reasons. Uh, so no. For reasons. That's not happening. For reasons. Because the radio station is dangerous. Mum said that I could. No, she didn't. I no, know for a, I didn't. I know for a fact she did not say that you could come. She did when she didn't know that that's what I was asking. And that's what counts. No, it doesn't. Fine. Listen. No, no, it's fine. She, like, crosses her arms, like, as you're, like, holding her midair. She just crosses her arms and, like, looks away from you. Alistair, <laughs> like, looks directly into her, like, leans really quite, like, yeah. looks directly into her. He's like, listen, you can't come because it's dangerous. I don't know what I'm going to find there. But hypothetically, if I have time, what do you need? <laughs> She's like, what do you want? I will know when I see it. Things for reasons. For reasons of research into how they work. Marv would have taken me. All right. If I find something lying oh. around. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. Yes, he would. He took me before to... Um, I forget what it's called. The workshop with the cars. Yes, because that was a secured location at the time and you were actually allowed to go there. Yes. Yes, unlike the radio Fight, station. Put me down. No. Put me down. <laughs> no. You see how annoying that is? No, she's just going to start kicking. <laughs> Ow. Fine. Go find your mum. Okay, she she you put her down. <laughs> she runs like perpendicularly away from both of us, like no, along no, no. the wall. No, no, you put her down. And she's like, okay, turns as if she's gonna walk towards someone, and then bolts past you for I, the door. I catch her. <laughs> and roll for no, this. No, I, I knew exactly what was gonna happen. <laughs> I know I don't roll for this. I have been living with this child for seven years. Yeah, you I just like catch exactly her by the backpack, and she's again like perpendicularly like tr- <laughs> struggling. Dust. Yeah. <laughs> I just like turn her around until she's facing back towards Puck. I'm like, and Puck takes off you go. Takes her like the backpack. I was like, and back we go. Uh, she's like, 
holding holding Sky um, by the shoulders to keep her from running. Like, yeah. Be as quick as you can. We will. We've probably got a good window of a couple of days, but as quick as you can. And <sighs> and if um, if we get on to Heath, yeah, you... she passes you a slip of paper. Are you sure? Yeah, just. I mean, I know you don't really have a choice, but I've got to ask. Whether it's Morse or you can get it through verbally. And, you know, just if you can, this is what I'd like him to know. Okay. Be quick and be safe. Back before you know it. Yeah, and keep an eye on... She kind of nods. She's nodding at Ernest, but you can tell she's kind of nodding past Ernest. <laughs> Ernest is doing like... Like a shimmy, but he's he's like so far away from you guys. He can't even like hear what you guys are doing. He's yeah. like waiting at the edge of the forest for Edgar to come out. <laughs> it's like Edgar, come on, we're hitting the road. Just everyone's angry at me here. I want to go. <laughs> we'll be all right. Okay, we'll be okay. All right. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, it's okay. <sighs> Jeremy will be here soon. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ernest, let's go. Flicks his head around. Uh, Smash cut. No, no, yeah. Ger- as your as Ernest is what is is as Alistair is walking out of the gates uh, down to you, Ernest, you hear faintly in in the distance, like on the wind, and you're not sure if it's your imagination. Like, what up, oh, sky? What up, kids? <laughs> <laughs> well, and Who's ready you, for daycare? And then you just hear all of the kids like, yeah. uh. <laughs> no, no. You you hear you hear you don't actually hear words, but you hear an intonation. It's like that's familiar. And then you just hear the roar of about twenty children like yelling something all at once. And you're like, ah. I don't know what that's about. Uh, <laughs> a shiver of fear runs down her spine. Yeah, there's something unsettling <laughs> about it. You're like, mm, that's a lot of kids. Alistair like does a final wave to Puck and then turns to you. And yeah, Puck. Puck has um, she has picked up one of these sort of uh, fabric satchels uh, that you can see all of the field workers are wearing, and she's actually heading for one of the fields too. Okay. Um, all right. So you are on the edge of the forests. You've got about a, I'd say it's about a four-hour hike to get to the the radio station from here, unless you're taking horses or a vehicle of some kind. Mm-hmm. In which case, I'd take it down to maybe an hour and a half. This is watching everyone walk past, like wow. People are people are chatting and Based laughing. Based nature pilled. Sorry, no. Well, I don't know what <laughs> that, that means. That is not so. something Ernest would say. <laughs> Base return to medieval England, <laughs> bruh. Return to the colony. All right, man, with a plan. What's the plan, man? I'm still finishing my egg sandwich. Um, Edgar can't ride a horse, can he? No, but he's faster without one anyway. I think for the sake of pure speed, we should go with that plan. We can leave them somewhere safe and then do the rest of the journey on foot. All right, so how, if it was a four-hour hike, how long is it with horses? About an hour and a half. Because you're, the, roads? the roads are almost entirely gone. Okay. Um, so you're actually cutting cross trail. And this is where the, the horses aren't hugely faster going up. And we wouldn't take incline and the you've got fastest, a, fittest horses. Yeah, you've either. got to negotiate your way up. But they cut down massively on any long stretches that you'd be going along where there are still roads. You walk. Um, I got a roll. 
for things. Great. Oh, God. So, yeah, your journey is uneventful. Um, you wind your way up through these trails. As you reach sort of the headland, um, this is a place that has always been pretty sparse of trees because the ground's pretty rocky and the soil is shallow. So you get to the end of the woods and you decide to tie the, the uh, horses here and you can see that there's probably about a 15-minute, 20-minute walk. You can see the radio station tower um, occasionally through the fog as it kind of uh, is revealed and then disappears again. Uh, Edgar has been following you. Ernest, uh, you're aware Edgar is very quiet, more quiet than he has been for most for like the journey of the last couple of weeks. Uh, and you can see while he has been trying to, to not hide it, um, but you can see that his hands are bloody. And he's been, he's kind of, as you were beginning, he was trying to wipe them as discreetly as he could. Um, and you can see he seems fairly withdrawn today. And you're not sure whether it's just that he hasn't been in his Wendigo form for a while, not since you were um, partially on your journey. He certainly hasn't for like the last week and a half. Yep. And whether there's just, that's kind of a pattern Ernst is, uh, will pull his uh, water bottle from his jacket and he'll take the top off of it and uh, turn to Edgar and begin pouring it over Edgar's hands so he can like wash them. Yeah. Alistair's just like tying the horses up to a tree or something while you're, while you're doing that. He kind of wordlessly washes his hands and nods. Ernst stops it and puts it back in his pocket. Alright, well let's keep going. Alrighty. Uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, we're going to be a bit slower, so it's a bit more dangerous from here, but it's still early morning, so that's a good sign, and uh, we'll be able to make more ground uh, on foot and be able to... We don't have to stay on the paths as much, so I think we should go on foot from here, and then uh, hopefully we get back here, ride home before the sun sets. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. As you begin to walk, uh, you are walking through almost uh, chest-high grass at this point. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the one thing that has grown here. Um, And you can see that there's sort of small shrubs and things, but the things that haven't taken well, a lot of them are very skeletal or unhealthy looking. Now, just be very careful with where you're putting your feet, especially in this area. I know, and this points a bush. That's poisonous. It points nothing. That's prickly. Yes, and that section over there is that nuclear worms. Ah, big worms. Ah, ah. I was, I was mind immediately went to mm, compost garden. <laughs> no, no. If if you feel if you feel the ground like soft underneath, that's the worm tunnels. Take a step back immediately. Very important. Yeah. Ernest is like worms. Mm, normal worms. Alice is like bigger. Like eh, like I don't know. Bigger? It's like bigger. Snake size. Bigger. And it's like going bigger, bigger. Too big, stop. <laughs> <laughs> big worms. It's fine. We just need to see how the grass over there has got that kind of like more yellowy tinge to it. Like it looks more dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Worms. Don't go that way. <laughs> see over there where it's like really bright and green and, and really fresh looking? More worms. Yeah, don't go, <laughs> don't go over there either. <laughs> See this this line in the middle where it's like half halfway between? That's good. That's, good. That's, That's safe. Good. All right. All right. Yeah. Problem is it's also poison ivy on there. So 
Yeah, that's just a plant. You just step over it. He like shows you his like ankles. <laughs> like they're low cut converse, man. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Nobody wears low cut converse. I like my ankles to breathe. We're in an apocalyptic wasteland. It's summer. With worms. Summer. You really weren't prepared for this, were you? I was prepared for summer. No, don't. This way. Okay. As you... See that? <laughs> you point to like what looks like a really small wombat hole, which I guess for overseas viewers is not a very helpful thing, but it looks like a small wombat hole. And he's like... Like a rabbit hole. See that? Basically. Yeah, yeah. That's a wormhole. Mm. And the worms and it. the rabbits do not get along. No. <laughs> it's a war. <laughs> There's been a very significant decrease in the rabbit population. Mm-hmm. Makes hunting them very difficult. So, fancy knife. Yeah, thank you. He pulls it out and, and it branches a bit. It was, um, yeah, it was given to me by Carrion. What about the gun? Well, that's kind of why, I guess, why I have this. He, um... Because I know Dylan's not with it anymore, but I didn't know what happened to it. Yeah, he he took it. He took it away. He he transported Dylan, uh, and I, with that, the physical form of the gun, it it can't really exist without a a host within it, and so he took that away as well. So what does it do? You like nods of the knife. <sighs> I don't know how it works, but basically it. Um, no, no, don't, don't, don't step there. This way. It's like four foot sinks in. Yeah, God, no. he, he like he like runs to you and like pulls you out and he's like, let's keep moving, keep moving. <laughs> Ernest, don't look back. Don't yeah, look back. <laughs> whether or not you look back, Ernest, there is this sort of slithering and you see this sort of mottled uh, pink orange sort of line of flesh like crests through the bit of the bit of earth that you had broken and down again, and it, it's genuinely like. Um, I was like a like a like a big python. Size, oh, I'm thinking more like like this is the 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 trunk of a of a youngish tree. Like if you yeah. put your if you take your hands and you put thumb to thumb and index finger to index finger, that's that's yeah. a pretty standard size. Like, like the biggest the biggest python you would imagine. Yeah, it's not good. This <laughs> is like a scratching sound as it moves through the dirt. All right, let's keep going. Good. Don't walk on anything soft. <laughs> so. Um, as far as I understand it, it has a connection with me. And basically, any time that I'm not in contact with it, I can choose to regain... I, I always know where it is, and I can always see it. I think it's part of, part of my time vision thing. It's mm. like, wherever the knife is, I can see it, and I can see its surroundings... I can see everything that's happening in the the close proximity to the knife, and also here, because that would make a very good sneaky tool of like investigating someone's conversation. You slip it in someone's bag, and you can listen to what they're talking about. Like reconnaissance. I don't know. I've never really tried that. It's more. It's not. It's not so much that I can see it or hear it visually. It's more I can. I can feel it. Like if I close my eyes, I can feel the knife in my hand and I can feel the surroundings around it. Um, and then if I if I lean into that feeling, I appear holding the knife wherever it is. Mm. So, for example, 
and he puts it down on the ground. He, he, he like, pats the ground with his hands, and he's like, yeah, it's safe. Puts the knife down, and we walk away. And it's like, okay, so, it's like 10 metres away. And he's like, so, I can feel that knife. I can feel it in my right hand. I can feel it in my left hand. And then if I close my eyes, and you can see just instantly he's not next to you anymore, and he's crouching down beside the knife, holding the knife in his left hand as it's sitting on the ground the way he described to you. And there is almost like this uh, this sound, almost like a, an air seal closing as, yeah. the, as the air rushes to fill the space where Alistair's body was. So you just hear this sort of... Is it? It's like so. I guess it's like teleporting, but it's it's not. It's not like I can just go wherever I want. It has. I have to be connected to the knife. Hmm. So that comes to the age-old question: Is it really you then? Ah. ah. Have you ever heard of the ship of Theseus? Uh, I'm not the same man I used to be. As you look into this like 36-year-old guy's <laughs> face, like, I'm not the same guy I used to be. Anyway. My hip. <laughs> yeah. And he, uh, he, so, uh, yeah. He, <laughs> he walks to you uh, and like bends down again and you just hear this like wet, solid sound as he walks past, like bends down and walks past and you look down and there's like a severed worm that was like half crawled around your, like a baby one that was like half crawled around your ankle while you weren't looking. Oh, why'd you have to kill her? Just pull it off. And like, the little ones come for you first. He's a baby. Picks it up and he like throws it away. <laughs> uh, the, the, as you like pick it up, the head end of it is like wriggling, trying to get you. It's Don't still alive. <laughs> yes. Very venomous. Yeah. Why are you saying that, Edgar? I'm just guessing. <laughs> Wash your hands. Okay, <laughs> for that's worth the bottle. All right. <laughs> cool. Um, as you continue walking, the mist begins to part, and you realize that you have arrived. Uh, the mist parts around this building that you have known, uh, Alistair, most of your life, and you have been to a couple of times. Uh, the Hook Bar radio station still stands atop the same ridge, same as it ever did. And as you approach it, you can see that it's a little greyer, a little more sun-bleached, a little sadder. Uh, the paint is peeling off this sort of squat brick facade. And as you get closer, you step into the car park and you can see that the, um, the concrete here has well and truly uh, cracked and split. And there's sort of lots of grass growing up through these cracks. You can see, even from here, the posters that used to be kind of hung on the inside windows of the, the, the glass doors and stuff are so faded and bleached you can't even recognise the, the the words anymore. The only thing you, you can recognise is the peeling uh, paint on the doors that say, Home of Hook Bar on Air, uh, as you get closer. Um, and you can see that high above the, the radio station itself, the, the tower is looming and there is no flashing red light from the top one thing I will say though is that the uh, the old combi van of Herbs is still in the parking lot yes uh, the tyres are now completely dead they're literally just sunk it's slightly kind of a little bit uneven on one side um, 
you can barely, barely make out the pattern of seagulls flying <laughs> across the side, but there is like moss grown yeah, nice. underneath it uh, in the shade and in the corner of the windows. It's like black mold. So it's been two and a half years since the last time we were here. Uh, and at the rate things tend to change around here, I think it's safe if we just assume that this is a completely unknown situation, that we're going in completely blind. Now, obviously, we have intel of the first time we were here together and, and the subsequent meetings, that you know, times that we've taken exploration out here. But it's been long enough that I think it's just safe that we assume it's an unknown hostile environment and we proceed with extreme caution. Huh? Is, is that okay? Ah, I was just still like looking over to where like the the beheaded worm is like wriggling in the sand in the dirt. He's like, I think we should do something. Yeah, yeah, uh, hostile location. It's all right, they, they don't like multiply or anything. Okay. I just, no, I just feel bad for. Them. Well, I mean, you could try and kill it. it They're very hard. I don't to want kill. to. I. Would you prefer? Would you prefer me to have left you there to be dragged down by the rest of the worms? No, that's what I thought. Alistair is like it was like two feet big. I could step out. There was two feet of it above the surface. Alistair, where was the whole thing? I pulled. I threw it away. Yes, the piece that I cut off. You cut off its head. Yes. No, the front bit. The rest of it was still on. Underground. No, I pulled everything. No, you pulled the head. No, the head was lying on the ground. I picked up the other part of the body. Listen, I understand that you're not a worm <laughs> expert, okay? Yeah, I understand you mustn't be either. You chopped off one bit. You did, unless you chopped Sing Sing. <laughs> I save his life and look what I get. <laughs> you... It's a worm! <laughs> Let's just go inside. Let's just go... It's getting warm. Let's just go inside. Edgar, come on. All right, so I'm going to walk up to the front doors. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to grab my knife. I'm going to, I guess, try the handle first. Mm-hmm. Does it open? Yeah. Okay. There's like cobwebs and stuff, but it creaks. Sure. It kind of squeals the hinges. I'm going to I'm gonna open the um, open the door about, I don't know, three, four inches. Um, and like start by just having a quick peer through and just I assume it's probably just shadowy and dark inside it's shadowy and dark you can smell like be a some musty smell in, of guess, damp and stuff yep. uh, you can see there's um, you know there's bits of paper that are kind of rotted and, and almost like moth eaten worm eaten on the ground yep so are we expecting to find evidence of Herb or Marv being here which one are we assuming we'll find clues here for I haven't seen Herb in years. We assumed that... We don't have any proof, but we assumed that he's long gone. Um, Marv said he was coming here two weeks ago. I told him it was a bad idea, but he didn't listen. Uh, He never listens to me. Uh, So... Hey, Marv's the only person that I'm really expecting that we might find alive. Now, Marv did say that he had a number of places he was hoping to get the pieces he needed to uh, get your okay. defense system online. This was one of the places, but okay. from even from the grass as you came through, it doesn't look like anyone's been here in a long time. There's certainly no evidence that, that he made his way here. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean he's not. It doesn't mean he didn't. But 
so far there's no clues that he did. All right. We proceed with caution, and he's going to pull out his knife again, mm-hmm. wipe some worm goo off it, and chuck it through the gap. Just like, like a little little wrist, like a little toss. Like, as you teleport, ding, 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 ding. as you tell, like, do you teleport immediately? No. Oh, you don't? No. So okay. Ernest will click his thumb and ignite his lantern. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Alistair chucks it through, um, not super hard, but enough that it goes a decent way into the room. He's like, all right, let's have a look. And he closes his eyes. And I would like to sense the room that my knife is in and the surroundings of the knife. Do I just do that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What kind of senses, what what ability does, what kind of things can he sense, I guess is my question. So I'm imagining it similar to how his prescience vision works in that he can see, like if he closes his eyes, he can see future events in like this kind of shady black and white thing. But uh. with the knife, it's not future events because it's not, him sensing through his prescience it's just the connection so he can like see and feel the knife where it is in place and then through extension of that he can see like kind of like a rough blurry black and white outline of the area so like if there was a person in there and he throws the knife in and closes his eyes he can see all right there's a person over there there's like there's a counter there I'm imagining it's got like a five meter range just for like a visual kind of thing for it. it could be kind of cool if it's like black and white but every like line is moving like you know like those radio signals, yeah yeah like, like very rrr, staticky rrr, 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 rrr. yeah but like like you know um in um uh Arctic Monkeys mm-hmm. AM um music video where it's all like the lines and like it moves into the shapes of things it's like the yeah rrr, rrr. it's almost like like you imagine like the visualizations of like echolocation sonar type thing yeah it's like it's very rough and undetailed but he just gets a sense of basically he's like if there's something that's going to eat me when I walk in the door, I'm going to be able to tell yep. if it's there. The only sense you get is that the room is in the same layout that it always has been. Yep. There's there's kind of a bench, a, a counter where the receptionist, when, when this was kind of a functioning place, even when you remember it as a kid, Herb was the only person who worked here. So yep. the, it, the reception desk was used for storage. Is the cat there? Uh, that you see nothing living and you see basically just as you would expect it to be. Uh, yep. There's nothing noteworthy. What happens to old plastic plants when they sit around for 15 years? Stay plastic or they melt. But would they like go like powdery or mm, something like that? I don't think so. I suppose if they're in the sun, they might go very brittle and faded for mm. the UV. I know, just because I know some plastics, like soft, soft-to-touch plastics go like gooey, you know, like in dank yeah. pods type of thing, like the yeah. text drop it changes. Yeah. Well, you're still standing outside, so... You don't know. Right, uh, uh, turns to Edgar and is like, "All right," and it, like, click, click, pat, pat, slap, slap, like, hand, like yeah, a handshake, oh, a handshake thing. Shake. And it's like, doo, doo. "All right, go, go." As far as I can tell, the room's safe. So let's move in and keep going. And he's he's gone. I was going to kick the door open and move to the side so Edgar can go in. Nice, you go in. Uh, Alistair, you open your eyes and yep. you are holding the knife. You're kind of crouched on the ground, I'm guessing. Yeah, because it would be lying. It would be sitting on the ground. And the first thing you, the first thing that kind of comes to your senses, is how soft the carpet is. And you, you kind of open your eyes. Oh no! And then you are greeted by a gentle swelling music that is sort of palatial and elevator-like. The the three of you are standing in the reception area of the Hook by Radio Station. Mm-hmm. And the carpet is uh, red with sort of like a, an orange 
wave motif that's kind of repeated again and again and again across it. Okay. It looks, the, the carpet looks fresh and new and it's almost like shag carpeting that your fingers are seeping into. Alistair, as you look around, the walls are freshly painted. Um, the couch here looks like it's mint condition. It is like a burnished orange 70s model. Uh, you can see all these posters and things on the wall framed that they look fresh as the day they were printed. There are pot plants in several of the corners and uh, the lights are on. This looks like it has been restored to probably its heyday in the late 60s, you think. And sitting on the, the bench where the, the reception is, there's a little transistor radio that's playing uh, this sort of soft music. That is significantly more disturbing than what I was expecting. Alistair looks better than it did when I was here. I was imagining... Oh, it looks... Yeah, this looks like 50 yeah. years before... 50, 60 years before you came, and it looked like it had been the same, but just old. Ernest is going to walk out and look at the, like, decrepit old building, mm -hmm. and then walk back in to see, like, the, like, perfect interior. <sighs> okay. Okay, okay. I think I know what's happened here. What's happening? Okay, great. Uh, Marv's becoming interior design. No, no, no. I, I look. I could be wrong. And Alistair's like sweeping the room as he's doing this to make sure there's nothing going to jump out and kill them. He's like checking the. He's like cutting all the pot plants off in, no. case, in case they're like. <laughs> and they're real pot plants. They're not no. plastic. <laughs> oh, okay. You're like pulling out the roots. Yeah, and you're like yeah, checking exactly. for bugs or something. You're like. That's gonna one be a of wire these, in here One somewhere. of these could be a mating plant. <laughs> I've had worse. Um, I got a really bad scar from that once. <laughs> Pays to be careful. Okay. Uh, so, uh, time, time is time's weird. I hate it. I hate time travel. Okay. Uh, ooh, all right. Should mm, should we try and go in through the back, or should we just? He's like, he's like, why is like, Alistair so angry? Alistair is giving off this this sense that he is like a slightly feral animal trapped inside a very nice home and he does not trust anything here. Just, 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 just settle down. I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna do my thing. And like if it's time travel, then this place has gone back to a time pre us being yeah, here. I know. So if I can touch things and still see us coming in, it means this place hasn't been affected by time. I'm just gonna touch if it has, then it means how do we fix something if it's not broken on the inside, it's only broken on the outside. Ah, I hate time travel! Okay, I'm just gonna touch the desk and see if well, I can. You just get, uh, you get kind of a flash of uh, laughter and voices and music and and then also like a saw, like a timber saw running and like a carpenter, and then and Chainsaw then and screaming and then it's overcome by this sound of static, and then the static gets louder and louder until your ears are ringing and hurting and pull your hand away. Ernest pulls his hand away and he like backs up for a second as he sees a flash of a very different radio station mm -hmm. and he sees a woman moving along the corridor and he slaps himself and says you alright? what it's happened? Not, it's not Mercy's Creek it's fine um, yeah so this has been he like points to the table I can hear that thing being cut so I think this has been moved backwards in time. Also, there's a staticky thing, which I think is like a disturbance in the force. It's, it's probably <laughs> the just the, the bleeding of the time dilation. We had. Mm. 
a similar thing in that. Yeah. The the little the the transistor radio is kind of like. I'll tell you about that next time. For the sixties, pocket sized. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's it's cranking out some lightly jazz kind of elevator music. Okay. Okay. Has to change the change the channel. See if we can find a new station that will tell us the date. Ah, good thinking. Okay, Alistair's going to play through the frequencies. Okay. Um, what I'll get you to do is I'll get uh, uh, Alistair, since you're doing it, roll a d6 for me. Okay. Button comes off. Yeah, no. Uh, it's a two. Uh, a two. Nothing changes. Okay. You're looking around and you're, you're the... It's going, but you basically just cycling through music channels. There doesn't seem to be a news channel in okay. here. Um, but you're kind of you find basically the same kind of music station, more or less. It's a different. It's slightly more upbeat. It's maybe like swing jazz now or something. You're like, okay, right. yeah, okay. Um, question: Is the carpet shining carpet? You were just the way you were describing it, it before made me like ah. <laughs> it's got something similar in it's the repetition of a it's pattern again and again and again. It's that era. It's not the shining, okay. but this is like a wave motif, um, okay. which is kind of like a red carpet with a sort of orange and white kind of it's like what you'd see at old um, uh, cinemas yeah that yeah, kind of thing yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Edgar is like looking around and saying so this is weird but we're here to get a message out so I'm guessing what we need to find the well the problem yeah the problem is if the exterior of the building and the antenna is current day broken down abandoned hook bar and if the interior has been bled back into the fifties, I don't know how we fix it because the inside isn't broken. We have to we have to get the but if the we inside have to cross the time streams. But if the inside isn't broken, then it means that the tower's working. But if the so inside is not broken, that means something else is going on here. And last time we were here, when nothing seemed like it was wrong, we nearly died. So I'm I'm extra concerned this time. Well, it's more if if the new. Like, if the inside of the building and the outside of the building have to talk to each other and they're in two different timelines, I don't know how we... Hey, time travel! Well, should we just break things? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's productive. No, but if we broke it, then it would be a similar amount of broken to common day. That doesn't I think that just means we have a... I think that's vandalism. <laughs> I think that's just vandalism. Shut up, Edgar. Wait, if we break, hang on. Ooh, if we break. See, it sounded like an alright idea, but if then... we break the radio station in the fifties, does that mean it doesn't work in the future? Or I don't just, know that this is time try, travel. We could just try and. There's the no one here, and when we step travel. out the door, it just seems like someone's redecorated. All right, I say we go in through the back and see what happens. Okay. Why don't? Should all of us? I'll leave my knife here. But I'll go in through the back. If anything goes wrong, I teleport back here. Okay. Right, okay. Going outside. Alistair stabs it into the desk. And what? You can't break it. He's like looking at the plants. <laughs> yeah, 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 at the exactly. Why? There's there's like dirt over the floor now from the plants he's pulled out. He's just like wrecked the place. All right. Yeah. So I stab the knife into the desk and then walk out the front doors. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna walk around the back. Just you. Yes, just me, because if I get into any trouble, I can, can teleport, teleport back, but they can't. Right. You're working your way through the high grass that's grown up right along the outside. Yep. So if I remember, there's the desk, and then there's like a corridor. Is mm-hmm. there? Are the lights on in the corridor? The door's closed. Let's go look to Edgar. Is it... Just a peek. <laughs> just a peek? Just a, just a peek. All right. right. Uh, Alice is still just as much of an idiot and forgets that you can't be trusted with <laughs> anything. 
right. Ernest and Are we staying with Ernest for a bit? We'll save from that just for this moment. Cool. Ernest and Edgar, you, you open the door. Is there a keyhole that I could peer through first? No. Okay. It's not a lockable door. Ernest is going to move to the side of the door and like get in position so that Edgar can go, like, can peek through as well. Yep. It just looks, it's just shadow and darkness. <laughs> you see Alice's yeah. face, like, hey man. <laughs> you can't see no, anything. It looks like the lights are off in here. You can't see anything until you get into the room. Hmm. Ernest will fetch up his lantern and hold it through the door and snap it. He's going to focus on making it as bright as possible. Um, okay. Well, roll for me a d10 and a d6. Uh, two threes, so six. Uh, on each. So three on each. I don't need to know what they combine. I just need to know what the individual roll is. So three on each. Okay. Um, as you push the lantern through, uh, you blink like... You kind of, the, it ignites, you You can't, you just, as a normal functioning human being, you blink and you are inside the room. Uh, and you are inside the hallway, as it has always been. But you feel this wave of almost nausea pass over you because nothing here is right. Uh, it is almost in this grainy black and white where the walls seem to be in this flux of static and the floor is in this flux of static, but almost like running in a different direction, these contrary grains of static. You're seeing the world almost as if it was a, a, an imaginative interpretation to paint this scene using different forms of, of both visual and auditory static and white noise. And the two of you are standing in this hallway. Good job. I can do what I want, Mom. <laughs> All right, we cut back to we cut back to Alistair. Alistair, you're heading your way around the building. You're kind of cutting your way through this tall grass, strolling through the grass. Nice summer's day. Being careful, but mm-hmm. you know, just, just chilling. Um, and I, yeah, so I walk out the front. I walk around the side to the back, and I assume because I think I remember us saying there's like there's the entranceway, there's the hall that leads towards the recording room, and I feel like there was a back door or mm-hmm. something. There was a back door that was like connecting like the to the switchboard room. That's right. Um, yeah, for for maintenance to the tower itself. Yeah. So Alistair's like picking his way around like the the grass and like there's probably some broken glass and stuff around there. Um, and he gets to the door, I assume. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm gonna start by just trying the handle. It's not locked. Right, uh, I I like open it and then kick it open so the mm-hmm. door opens, and I just start by peering inside. You can't see anything; it's just black. Okay, um, I'm gonna step up to the door frame, so I haven't walked in yet. Mm-hmm. Like even closer and just like look in as well. It's Still just shadowy see. and dark. Like the lights are off and there's no natural light coming in, and because of the fog. There isn't a lot of like sunlight to get in there. Yeah, sure. Okay, um, but from what you can see, like around the door where you can see light, it looks old and dirty and dusty and like it is abandoned. Well, that's an improvement. I can't believe I'm saying that an abandoned building is an improvement, but that's 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 good. That's what I expect. And so I just start by like putting my foot in to make sure that there is a ground there. There is ground there. All right. Um, I'm going to draw one of my switchblades in my left hand. Click it open and then keep my right hand free because if I don't have a hand free, I can't teleport back to the knife. Yeah. And I just very slowly start walking in, and my, I don't know if this is an action I can prepare or something, but 
basically, if anything happens, if anything goes wrong, tries to attack me, you just immediately get out of there. Yep. Back I'm, to you can be prepared to do that. Yep. Um, all right. We'll roll a six and a ten. A six and a ten. Okay. You've... Okay. D6 is a five. The D10 is a one. You open the door, you step through, and you, as you kind of this stepping in, you're expecting to move into this, into the little entrance before the switch room. Yep. But you find yourself stepping out of the front doors once again. Of the front doors out into the car park. You step out into the car park, but the car park is in no way, shape, or form the same. There is no fog. You are looking out, and there is a, an endless rolling sea of this tall grass, but the grass is all in a shade of sort of grey silver. And where there should be a sky, there is just matte, unending, dark blue. And everywhere you look, everything is in a shade of mirror blue that is sort of this dark shadow. It's all navy blues and, and these sort of things. And it's cold. It's very, very cold. And you're just looking out at this endless kind of field of grass. Dagon? This reminds me of a certain Guzman incident. I knew I should have left my knife at the combi van. Ah, hate time travel! Uh, th- and you, you, you... This is kind of putting a little bit of a hole in your theory because you're looking at this like... Ah, yeah, it's clearly not time this travel. This cannot be time <laughs> travel. It's just... Um, all right, we're going to cut back to Ernest. Ernest. Uh, Ernest is going to uh, sink down to the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to cross his legs and put the lantern down the ground. It's like, all right, done this before. I don't like this. Yeah, neither do I. But I think the best way it to handle this. It makes my teeth hurt. Sit down, sit down. The best way to handle this is to rise above. No, not this. So we're going to meditate, uh, and I'm going to focus on making this as bright as possible that we can possibly maybe break through the illusion that's going on. This is so good. uh, Edgar is like putting his hand to the wall, and every time he touches the wall, there's like a flux in the static pattern. It's like... It react, this whole thing, it always reacts to our input into it. The only way to avoid it and all that type of stuff is to get on a different plane from it. So come on, sit down. Yeah, mm. pat on the shag okay, carpet. Hey, okay, okay. The floor, There's like, no carpet here. Does like the a floor static is buzz just this static buzz. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right. Give me your hands. Other hands as well. Got to, you okay. must form a circle. Chester and Orbit, you don't uh, have to hold hands as well. This is how I role play. I do the bring, bring, <laughs> and I hold hands. Uh, okay, so the lantern is like in between him and Edgar. And Ernest is going to close his eyes and begin, premium role play, right? begin meditating and start focusing solely on the lantern. He's going to start talking through it. So we're just focusing on that central point, that one real tangible Your thing. Your hands are sweatier. I know. <laughs> Calm down. I'm not anxious. I'm just saying. Okay. We're just, we focus on the one tangible thing in here, other than us, the thing that can break through any illusion. Okay. okay. Just focus on that. Mm-hmm. Right. So with their combined strength, what can we, like, can we do anything with the lantern? You, uh, Edgar, you are kind of, are you eyes open? No, eyes closed. Okay. You can feel Edgar's hands and they just feel like normal. Um, but you, once you start, you start focusing and you can feel the light getting brighter and the warmth from the lantern. Brighter and brighter and brighter as it fills the hallway. You can't really see what it's doing because your eyes are closed. 
and as it gets to the end of the hallway, it interacts with a shape, a figure of some kind of human proportions, and it recoils. You feel the, the light itself kind of wobble and shake, and then you just feel this, uh, almost like this force, gravity, that pushes down on your brain harder and harder and harder, and uh, you need to make a decision about whether you're going to try and interact with this thing or whether you're going to pull back from this thing because it's like it feels like a bowling ball is heading for you. There's just this sense of pressure pushing in. Like when you dive down to like the bottom of the pool yeah. really quickly and you get that like yeah yeah. And there there is almost there is just the the, the hint, just the sliver of something intelligent hiding behind this force. Yep. Ernest raises to his feet. He grabs up the lantern and he turns in the direction that he felt the, the force. And he holds out and he says, I am the master of the lantern and I will not be denied. And he snaps his finger and he's going to push as hard back as he can. The shield rushes down the, the corridor and its reach ends. And you get a sense very briefly of a human figure in dark clothing and something shadowy and strange about the face, something about the head is not right, and then it is pushed back out of this, uh, out of the physical space that you're in, out of the corridor, but that's where the effect ends, is the corridor. And it is still static. It doesn't, whatever this is, the shield doesn't have the ability to dispel it, which makes you think, this is not an illusion, this is something physical. This is a physical state that it is in, which you can't dispel like you would some kind of an illusion. Being someone who creates illusions. Yeah. Okay. Ernest pulls the revolver from his back pocket and clicks the hammer back. Come on, Edgar. Let's catch him. And I'm going to start tearing down the corridor. So Alistair, uh, in mild contrast to Ernest, who decided to sit down and meditate with the hallway and understand its true feelings, um, he just he has this like innate frustration with any like illusionary multiple time straight like because Alistair is such a practical person, right? It's like too much trauma from the pig incident. (laughs) It's just like I can't do it. No, it's just like. Having taken care of these people for so long, it's like if it's a physical threat, I can I can shoot it, I can talk to it, whatever. If it's this weird illusionary mind, it's like I hate that. I can't do anything with that. And so just this kind of frustration, just like he's like, all right, I'm gonna break it. And so instead of turning back and going through the the thing, you said that instead of being able to see like the actual surroundings, it was just like grass and sky, right? Pretty much, yeah. So he's just gonna just like pick just straight direction away and just sprint. He just runs right. as fast as he can. He's like, I'm going to get to the edge of this illusion. I'm going to break it. And it's, it's the reverse of what happened last time with Ernest outside and, and Alistair getting attacked inside. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly that. All right, you, you take off sprinting and you're, you're a very fit person. Your life yeah. is kind of revolves around being physically capable these days. And so your cardio is, is, is peak he's, performance. He's pretty quick. 
you're very fast, you're moving well, you're kind of, and you're actually, you get this little sense, there's something in your brain that kind of perks up. It's like, this feels good, this feels right. Yeah. I know how my body works doing this. It's the same kind of thing with his reaction. It's like, this is why I hate illusionary yeah. stuff. Because it's like, run here, fight this. He's like, yes, that and, I can do. And you are just parting the grass as you are running, and you realize that there's no worm uh, that was my, that anywhere. Was my question. The, the ground is solid and uniform and fine. Yeah. And you run and you run and you run and it, you even though you're running and you're like uh, your heart is pumping, your blood pressure is up. You begin to feel the cold on your skin and the mm -hmm. cold grows more and more intense and the air grows thinner and thinner until you either push through or you begin to slow as you realize you almost can't breathe. I would be the oxygen is getting yeah. thinner and thinner and colder and colder and roll a d12 for me. Mm -hmm. Nine? Your nine is a success. So your skin, you can feel like if I don't start doing something different right now, my skin is going to start to crack and split from the cold. Okay. So he slows down to kind of like a walk. Like, and as far as you can see, the grass and the sky just continue. Interesting. Hate it. He's going to turn back around, and can I see the radio station? I'm mm -hmm. assuming it's a fair way away. Now. You've run almost a k. Yeah, I'd say almost a kilometer. So yeah. it's off in the distance. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to turn like perpendicular to the radio station and just walk for a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's like I don't know, ten, twenty meters. Yep. Does it feel like roughly the same over there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't like it. Make a perception check for me. Five. Uh, yes, you should. That would be intelligence. Uh, plus two, so yeah, so seven. Seven. You, it's you, as you. Result. You're kind of have your hands on your hips. You're looking. It's a mixed result. And you can see in the car park. Uh, you can see that there's a figure standing by the door. Um, just one, and they look pretty dark and small and far away from here. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of looking at. I wonder if that's Ernest. I wonder if he's come outside. Okay. And and he's in this reality now. Yeah. Too. And yeah. You, there's nothing... Something prickles at the back of your neck about this, but you can't tell mm. whether it's the okay. cold or this, but you can see this figure standing in the car park. Okay. Um, I'm going to start walking back towards... the Not running, just walking back towards the radio station. Because also I feel it's like, whatever this illusion is, I clearly can't survive out here Like if I mm -hmm. keep going further. So that didn't work because um, I think maybe I'll just reach the edge of it or something which is not happening so he's going to start walking back um, he's just going to call out as loud as he like cup his hands around he's like hello as you begin walking closer Alistair uh, you see this figure begins to kind of resolve into greater detail mm -hmm. and what you see is what seems like an ordinary man yep. uh, his stature is not dissimilar to your own he's wearing a very, a very 60s style kind of slim line suit in black, dark dress shoes. You can see a white shirt and a black tie. Okay. I know it's not Ernest at this you point. You know it's not Ernest at this point. Or Edgar. And he's just standing still, yep. his arms by his sides. But the, the where your mind begins to kind of that prickle at the back of your neck comes again is when you, you can see his face. Okay. For there isn't one. You right. see the, normal, the, the, the chest, the head, the neck is normal. Mm -hmm. Even the bottom of the jaw just looks like a person. Yeah. And then from where the teeth of the bottom jaw appear, it becomes black crystal. 
Ah, and the, okay. the head from that point up is misshapen, this almost uh, geological shape of mm. crystal growth where there should be a face and a head. Mm. And deep inside this dark black kind of slightly see-through, slightly smoky crystal, you can see two burning red points for eyes nice. as it's staring you down. Okay. Uh, okay. First thing I'm going to do is I want to sense the knife. Is it still in the same place in... Mm-hmm. It's, you can't tell. It is still in the lobby. You just get the physical the location of the lobby. You don't know which lobby, what condition the lobby is in. Okay. But, yeah. Yeah. So he hasn't... Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to talk. Like, Hello. There. The, the nice head, man. <laughs> the head sort of shifts, and inside your head, you just feel this pounding pressure. Oh, this overwhelming pressure of almost sonic capability of, of sound, but without sound. Just the pressure as if a massive speaker is right next to your head, but you cannot hear a sound. Okay. And then it stops. All right. I'm a bit lost. You hear it again. God, okay. stops. Mm. It holds out its hand to you. Just a normal human hand. All right. Uh, so I've got my, still got my knife in my left hand. <laughs> he just holds out his hand to you. Just a normal human hand. Just, just holding out to Nothing you. Nothing wrong with that. Just like normal. Just like normal. You know, just like human hand. You, you know how human hand? Human hand. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay, I'm going to retract, because i still got my knife in mm-hmm. my left hand. I'm going to retract that, clip it back into its, its place or put it in the pocket or whatever. Mm-hmm. I probably have like a little pouch or something. Clip it back in there, because I definitely am keeping my right hand free. There's, there's no question yep. about that. Uh, and I suppose I've run back at this point, and I'm like yeah. back in the car park now. I'm like, all right. And I hold my, hand, my left hand out as well. Mm-hmm. He's just stock still, standing the pressure inside your head's dropped. Okay. Uh, seems expectantly holding his hand out to you. Okay. I keep walking towards him and I say, I don't know how I ended up here. Could you help me get back to where I came from? You hear the pressure inside your head again. It seems like when this thing tries to communicate, this is what happens. Okay. Can I roll to try and find some kind of meaning or communication in this? You can roll. To see if I can, like, understand. Uh, it's an eight, so it's a... It would be a success if it's something I can do. Uh, you get the sense that you, there could be meaning made out of this, but it almost feels like you don't have, for lack of a better term, you don't have the equipment for this. Yeah, this okay. is not something that you could physically do. Maybe there, maybe there is some other way. Almost like a different language or something. It's like a different language or a way of there, translating the language through something. Okay, cool. It's like, I think, I think Ernest would be better at doing this. Uh gonna regret this okay so i reach out my hand walk forward and grab his hand 